the story of the ugly duckling. A little baby duck, shunned by his peers because of his shabby appearance and unduck likeness. That's not really a word, but you know what I mean. The little ugly duckling gets kicked out of town. And all through the winter time, he hid himself away, ashamed to show his face and afraid of what others might say. All through the winter, in a lonely clump of weed, till a flock of swans spied him there and very soon agreed. You're a very fine swan, indeed. And of course, the once ugly duckling didn't believe them. Because he didn't believe that such a change could be possible. But change he had. Now our theme last Sunday evening from the second half of chapter 2 of Titus was the distinctive life that Christians should be living. And it might be that there were quite a few people in the congregation then, and maybe you're here again this morning, and you too have ugly duckling syndrome. How can I possibly change to be like that? How can I possibly be that kind of person? How can anyone undergo such a dramatic change? Why should they? Well, as we consider the issue of distinctiveness, perhaps you find yourself asking one or both of these questions. How can I change? How can I change? Why should I change? Why should I change? Maybe the how can I is out of perplexity. Uh, Maybe the why should I is because we're still, all of us, a little bit too obstinate and stubborn than we should be. Maybe you're a Christian who thinks that in the big bad world out there, you have to give as good as you get or you're not going to get anywhere. You'll never survive unless you do. But that's not a view that you can square with the Bible. I think Paul, from past experience, anticipated all of these kinds of questions and uncertainties in the minds of the believers there in Crete. I think he knew that these kinds of doubts and fears and worries that the Lord's people can have are things that that Titus needs to be ready to address. And these two questions, particularly when we think about the distinctiveness that the Lord's people are required to be in the world, how can I, why should I? Well, Paul, in these verses, as he continues into chapter 3, I want to show show you that he, he causes you to pause and to reflect and bring to mind four important points, four important truths The first is what I was. The second is how God responded. The third is what God did. And the fourth is what that means. 
So let's think about the first of those four things. Looking at verse 3, because we trickled into verses 1 and 2 at the close of uh, last Sunday. We ourselves were also once. Verse 3 is a description of the world without Christ. Verse 3 is a description of you without Christ. It's a description of me without Christ. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, with malice and envy, hateful and hating. They're not nice things, are they? They're not at all flattering. None of us would hate to have those things said of us, but they are all of us without Christ. Without Christ, people have dubious motives, selfish intentions, and make wrong choices and bad decisions. They're foolish. They don't think they are. Which of you, before you were saved, thought yourself a fool? Maybe just as you were being saved, maybe, but for, for many of us, uh, outside of Christ, we can remember times when, well, we were quite confident as to who we were, but we were foolish. Sin is such that our foolishness actually seems reasonable to us for most of the time, but foolish we are. Without Christ, there's an inbuilt disregard of authority and a disrespect towards authority. The important thing is not obeying the law. The important thing is how not to get caught when you do break it. That's how the world lives. We naturally kick, we naturally kick out as anyone who dares to tell me what to do. Even down to how fast I'm supposed to drive. Driving down Egbeth Road this morning, just down by St Margaret's School. There's a policeman in his high-vis jacket at the edge of the road. All the brake lights were coming on. As it was, he was just standing at the edge of the road. But everyone's conscience got pricked. Who would dare to suggest that I am in any way in the wrong Authority is simply a challenge to see how much you can get away with outside of Christ. Without Christ, we're led astray in so many ways and in so many directions. We think wrong is right, right is left, and up is down. We're deceived in our lifestyles, in how we view the world, in how we think life began in what we think comes after death, in how we estimate things to be of value or to be of worth. Everything is topsy-turvy outside of Christ. Without Christ, we are foolish, we're disobedient, and we are deceived. By God's common grace, not as much as we might be. But those things are true of all of us. Outside of Christ, we all once were. And we were slaves. We were slaves to lusts and pleasures. There's no end to the kind of addictions that people get hooked on today, is there? And it all begins either with foolish choices or decisions 
or with serving lusts and pleasures and seeking gratification. Uh, John Benton, in his little commentary on Titus, tells the story of a man in 14th century Belgium who was imprisoned in a prison cell which had no door, but he couldn't escape. The reason he couldn't escape was because he was so obese he couldn't fit through the doorway. So they didn't need to worry about putting a door where the door should have been because he couldn't get through. Now you might think, well, all he has to do is lose a bit of weight. And he's out. But he couldn't lose any weight. Why? Because he was a glutton. And they just kept giving him food. And he kept on eating. And he imprisoned himself. Because of his own selfish desires. And lust. For food, in his case. People do that in all kinds of ways. Imprison ourselves. And that's how we were without Christ. That's what people are like without Christ. Imprisoned by lusts and cravings and ambitions and aspirations which they all hope will fulfill but never do. And the grass always looks greener over there and I am the victim over here. And so without Christ, we're taken up with malice and with envy. We're taken up with malice because we want to get even and we're taken up with envy because we want to get level. How many people do you know like that? Do you see what they did? I've got to get even. Do you see what they have? I've got to get level with them. Malice and envy take over people. Malice because we hate it when other people do better than us. And envy because although we hate them, we actually want to be like them. That's bizarre, isn't it? But it's true. Without Christ. Without Christ, it's horrible being me. I'm hateful and we all hate one another without Christ. That's what you were once. You see, that's what the world is so used to seeing. That's how the world is so used to behaving and reacting and responding. But as we're reminded in those opening verses of chapter 3, they should be totally amazed to find that there are people in the world who are not like that. But I was once. So what changed? I was once. So what changed? You see, that little two-word question is what our distinctive lives as, of, as believers should be prompting on the lips of others. What changed? What changed? Answer. God stepped in. God stepped in. And in verse 4 we see how God responded. 
you were once, you were once, you were once, but, but when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour toward man appeared. You see, God looked down at this sorry mess and it made him very angry. The Bible speaks about the hotness of God's wrath against sin. Those he made in his own image, those he made to walk with him and to live in loving communion with him, have rejected him, have rebelled against him, transgressed his laws. The wretched state of our sinful lives, God finds abhorrent. We are an abomination to him. We are ugly and filthy in our sins. And yet, in verse 4, we read of God's kindness. This is some kindness, you know. God's kindness. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it's not always easy to be kind to someone who has caused you deep offence. It's tough. Even the best of Christians can struggle with that at times. That malice too easily rears its head. But in God... There is a kindness which is able to transcend the awfulness of our sins. Such is God's kindness. Because the eternal and infinite God is eternally and infinitely kind. And that is such very good news in this world. Now all through the Old Testament scriptures as you read through the Old Testament, we keep seeing God's kindness again And again, in his long-suffering and his forbearance with the nation of Israel, they're continually turning from him, sinning against him, and worshipping idols, and doing all manner of things. But God continues to be kind. He has this unfailing promise of forgiveness and restoration for all who will repent and return to him. The constant cry of the prophets in the Old Testament is repent and return. Because God is kind, even in his anger. And to top that, there's the promise of one who will finally and forever deal with the issue of sin. One who will come as a substitute, who will stand in the place of sinners. Why? Because even though his anger burns so hot against sin, God is amazingly kind And the source of God's kindness is the vast ocean of his love. And this kindness and love has been directed towards us. Love always has an object, doesn't it? You can have a loving nature. You can be someone who's ready to love. But you need something or someone to love. There's a song in there somewhere. You need to have an object for your love. The kindness and love of God toward man. It's aimed and directed at sinful men and women like we. That's what's made the difference. God came to us in kindness and love. Has he done that for you? Should that not make you distinct in this world? If that's true. Christians 
must be distinct in the world because you're the object of God's kindness and love. And it's appeared to you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's now your saviour and your Lord, who you now love and serve and worship and follow. How can you not be different? And so, you are one who was also once, but God has moved. And God has brought about this great change within you. Because God has responded. And in verses 5 to 7, Paul continues, having talked about that God has responded in kindness and love, what actually did God do? And so he reminds us what God did, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, justified by his grace, him, he, his it wasn't anything we did. So we don't stand in the world trying to take any credit for it. But that we have this distinctiveness because God has done something wonderful. Sometimes people struggle with the gospel actually because they think they're too sinful for God to be able to help them. God, God can't be interested in the likes of me. Others struggle because they're not sinful enough to need God's intervention. Well, these verses address both cases. There's no righteousness in us. There are none who can say that they're not sinful enough to need the Savior. Those sinful passions listed in verse 3, they may not be so vile in you as they might be in others. But they're still there. You can't say they never show themselves. When it comes to obedience to God, you fall down in so many places. And God meets us in his mercy. He's able to save to the uttermost all and any who call upon him. Because he has this abundant kindness. He has this abundant love he has this abundant grace which says, come, come. There's a terrible punishment that we're all facing because the nature of sin is lawlessness and transgression. Yet God's love and kindness has moved him to act in mercy towards us. Now, mercy isn't a feeling. Pity can be something of a feeling. Sympathy can be something of a feeling. Mercy isn't a feeling. Mercy is active. Mercy is something you do. Mercy is something done. And God's mercy is because his love and kindness has moved him to do something about our condition. He has saved us. That's why we can speak of God's mercy, because he's done something. It's not just how he feels. 
has done something about it for sinners. And we're being reminded of the astonishing work of God in salvation. How can those who have received all of this not be different, not be distinct? How has God saved us? Well, towards the end of verse 5, it talks about washing and regeneration and renewing. He's made you completely new, completely new. The old you has gone and this new creation now is where the old you used to be. That's why you're different. That, that now is why you are distinct and how you can be distinct because you're new in Christ. You're a new creature. If this has happened, you can't carry on being the old you. You can't carry on being as you were once. How was Cinderella to get to the ball in her rags and her filth covered in soot? Well, in the fairy story, and it is only a fairy story, the godmother waves her wand and in a twinkling of fairy dust, if there was such a thing, from head to toe, she is completely transformed and made fit for the ball that she's to attend. She's cleansed. She's clothed in regal majesty. Now, it's only a fairy story, but in many ways, it's actually quite a good picture of what God does in the power of his Holy Spirit on the inside of every sinner by the power of his Holy Spirit when they turn to Christ. A rather more substantial work than a fairy godmother with Cinderella. A rather more valuable work and something that goes beyond midnight. Definitely not the stuff of fairy tales. Real, real, real cleansing. Real transformation. Real being reclothed and made fit. That's what God has done in you, Christian. Cleansed, transformed, made new, born again is the Bible's phrase. A new nature, a transformed mind, new passions and desires, new ambitions, new priorities. Because on the inside, God has made you over, totally. The fruits of repentance start to show. The fruit of the Holy Spirit begins to come out of the life of the Christian, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control, all begin to appear in the life of the Christian. There's no area or aspect of life that these don't start to affect in the life of one who's had this uh, transforming work of God. Maybe you find yourself in a situation with someone else and you know how you should be responding and behaving. You're thinking to yourself, 
but I can't treat him like that. Or Ian, if you only knew what she was like, you'd, you'd understand why I just can't bring myself to be that distinct person that I'm supposed to be. I know I should, but I've got legitimate reasons not to. Can't think that way. Not if this transforming work of God's Holy Spirit has genuinely taken hold of you and changed you and transformed you and gripped you and moved you. To any objection that the Christian might try to bring, I can't, comes verse 6. He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour abundantly it's not a quick rub down and a five minute makeover it's complete and absolute abundant grace the abundant work of God's Holy Spirit in your life and it continues it continues to flow it never ceases because you've been united to Christ forever and in union with him you have all the resource you will ever need to be the Christian man and woman that God needs you to be, to be the Christian young person that God calls you to be. And so there you stand in verse 7 as one who has been justified, one who has been made right with God. And here is the distinctiveness of the Christian. You once were, but now here you are justified and right in God through Christ. No longer under God's condemnation. And you've been set free from the bondage that once held you. All those things in verse 3. You've been set free from those now. In Christ. Because you have in abundance everything that you are in need of. And so there you stand before the watching world. At every point and in every way that you make contact with people, there you stand as a Christian man or woman, at home, at work, at school, at uni, at the shops, as you drive your car, as you love your spouse, as you raise your children, as you honour your parents, as you choose your holidays, and in the church. There you stand, cleansed, renewed, filled with God's Spirit, united to Christ, justified by grace, Objects of grace, filled with God's grace, living out God's grace, heirs with Christ in the certain hope of everlasting life. How more distinct do you want to be? And Christ has done it all. God's done it all in you, to you, for you, for his glory. And this grace in which you stand is what marks you out. And if, you've, if you're in this grace, you will, you will be marked out. People will see the difference. They can't help it. You can't help it. Read these verses and come and tell me later, I can't be distinct. I can't live like this. You can. In Christ. Without him, it's, you're lost. It's hopeless. But in him, with him, through him, receiving abundantly everything you're in need of. 
It may be the case that you refuse to be distinct. That's a different matter. But if you're someone who is a Christian who's who's been refusing to be distinct, the answer is to get down on your knees before your God and Saviour and to repent of your sins, to trust him again, to acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord, to acknowledge that he has given you and he will be to you and for you and in you everything that you're in need of as a Christian man or woman. And if your heart continues to be stubborn and continues to be stubborn, it may well be that actually you know nothing of the realities of verses 5 and 6 and 7 and that actually you are still verse 3. In which case I would urge you to consider yourself before Christ. Consider again the claims of the gospel. See yourself as the sinner that the Bible says you are. See maybe for the very first time truly the kindness, the love and the grace of God that he has shown to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him as the sinner you are and receive the abundant good that God would have you have in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of us who are Christian believers, finally, what this means, verse 8. It's a faithful saying. This is true. This is unchanging, enduring truth that Paul is recording for us here. These things I want you to affirm constantly. Keep on telling them. Keep on telling them. Keep on telling them. They'll need to hear it again and again and again. They need to see it being exampled to them over and over again. Just keep on telling them who and what they are in Christ. Keep pointing them to Christ. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Paul urges Titus to never stop affirming these truths to the Christians and in the churches on the islands of Crete. We need to be constantly reminded of the practical reality of the gospel in our lives. That what you believe must change, has changed your nature and your character and your conduct. It it has and it must. But at the same time, it doesn't just happen. You have a will to exercise You still have personal volition and choices that you can make. You still decide what to think. You still choose what you think about. And you're to exercise all of these things. You choose how you're going to behave. So be careful, take care to do good works. Now by good works, the apostle isn't of course referring to specific tasks as such that you have to fulfill that that's the nature of other religions here are the works that you must do and and there's actually lists of things you've got to do that's not really what he's talking about when he talks about good works he's talking about 
everything that you do in your life as a Christian, which is in agreement with your new position and life in Christ. Everything that's in agreement and in accord with the word of God. They are all good works, living out the way God would have you live in character and nature and conduct. All of these things are good works. Your good works are are the working out of everything that's said about elders in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1. They're all good works. Everything that's said about church members in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 2, they're all good works. Everything that's said about slaves or, in modern parlance, employees in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2, they're all good works. And everything that's said about being a good citizen of the nation in which you live at the beginning of chapter 3, they're all good works. Your good works are all those things in your life which in increasing measure are demonstrating that your old sinful nature is gone. And it's done away with. And that you are someone who can say those things were once. But, but. And when you do that, you'll you'll be the distinct Christian man and woman and boy and girl that you need to be. These things are good, says Paul to Titus. These are right in God's eyes. These things honour God They glorify him. Be careful, be careful, be careful to maintain them. And your life will be profitable to others. These things are good and profitable to men. Your life, profitable to others, do others good. And that becomes a real concern for the true follower of Christ, that I do others good. You see, worldliness, life without Christ, at its core, is about being profitable to yourself. But as a child of God, it's been turned around and it's about being profitable to others. And being prepared to do so sacrificially if if it's necessary. The Christian faith is about living a life that's profitable to God and is profitable to other people. And especially to the people of God profitable to other Christians so that through you they may be helped and encouraged to press on and keep on and that in you they'll have a good example of how to do it profitable to those who are outside of Christ because going back to the phrase that's used in verse 10 and chapter 2 your life adorns the gospel your life commends the gospel they might not understand everything you say But they look at your life and they see something that is unbelievably good, even desirable, in you. Because when they look at you, as you stand distinct in this world, for an unbeliever, and even for believers, there can only ever be, there should only ever be one conclusion that anyone comes to only God could have done that 
in you. May it be so for each one of us.